0: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of One Mic Night, the podcast that brings you stories of artists and people on their journey, helping to guide, answer questions, and motivate you in life and the business. You already know who I am, it's Marcos Luis, and I want to thank everybody for joining me for all these episodes and sharing the episodes. Please make sure you subscribe, share these episodes, and like them, leave some comments down at the bottom, and feel free to leave a review, because it helps us in locating the podcast. If you're listening to the audio podcast, make sure you tip on over to YouTube because the podcast is there. We do it live, live chat every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. I also want to thank all the people who are listening to the podcast internationally. Shout out to Brazil. Shout out to the UK. And thank you for the comments and the love that you send me all the time. So we appreciate it. So today, I'm excited, excited beyond belief. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Tavon Bazemore. He is a licensed clinical social worker. He is a fellow podcaster. His podcaster is called Yes, I'm Going to Talk My Shift. And today, that's exactly what we're going to do. So please welcome him to the show. Welcome, doctor. Thank
1: you? you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. And thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I know we had a hard time coordinating the schedule, but um, hopefully we can get some- We worked it out. Yeah, we did, we did. Let's get some uh, information out there for people. Listen, I have questions. The first question is, who is Dr. Tavon Bazemore?
1: You know, when I think about who am I, I always think about the things that complete me. Um, And the things that complete me are um, family, Mm -hmm. Um, love, and resilience. Um, And so that's what I would say. That's who I am. I am a man that has been shaped by my family, filled with love, and built for resilience. Um, I am from the inner city of Baltimore, West Baltimore, Maryland. You know that it's a thing in Baltimore. Um, I'm from West Baltimore, Um, born and raised in West Baltimore. I am the oldest of four siblings um well five siblings my dad is still having babies Mm um my mom had three my dad had three and I'm the oldest of those um sibling groups um I am I guess a provider protector um I have provided and protected my siblings for the entirety of my life Mm -hmm. um when you are the oldest sibling and your family or your parents battle things like addiction um, you oftentimes have to wear multiple hats, um, and so I have been that in the lives of my siblings, their oldest brother, but I've also had to play that role sometimes as dad and step in and be dead, um, and so in all honor and love, I have to say, you know, rest in peace and love to my baby brother, um, Deron Shakur Harry, I always say his name, um, he's 27 years old, and he, um, lost his life to COVID. Oh, wow. So I always have to say my brother's name. Um, in 2021, I buried my brother and then turned around in 2022, I buried my mom. Um, so I say that I'm a man that is, you know, motivated by my family, filled with love and built for resilience.
0: Wow. That's a mouthful. Um, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. Um, second of all, we, I, I want to talk about that in a minute because that's an important part of who you are. But how, a little more specifically, how did you grow up? You said you were the oldest of, of now five or six kids. Mm-hmm. How was that for you? How was your child life like?
1: We lived in the inner city of West Baltimore, which you call Park Heights. If you ever hear about Baltimore, you will hear about Park Heights. Park Heights is one of the most well known places in Baltimore. It is plagued by violence and crime and drug addiction, like any inner city hood. Um, <clears throat> So me and my sister, we basically stayed together. My sister, her name is Leticia. Um, we're four years apart. We are the closest of the siblings. We stayed together. My mother, when she had my baby brother, she decided to um, make a hard decision, and she let him live with his father um, at a very young age. So he was raised by his dad. I had two other siblings on my dad's side who were raised by their mothers, and mm. um, One of my sisters, uh, she's like 27. She was raised by her mom and then I have another sister who is eight years old. Yes, I am 36, about to be 36 in June with an eight year old uh, sibling. Um, She is being raised by another family member as well. Um, So how did we grow up? We grew up in the inner city. We grew up in the hood. We grew up in a household that was plagued by uh, substance abuse, domestic violence. We struggled. Um, We were not the kids that had the finer things in life. Sometimes we didn't have the basic necessities. Um, Sometimes we didn't know where our next meal was coming from. We didn't know we were going to be sleeping. Um, We faced eviction. We had utilities cut off. We struggled. Like we were the idea of, or what you think of, you know, young people in urban communities and how they had to face life. That was our lifestyle. Um, I started working at 14 and nine months. Um, Because in Baltimore, you can work that early um, for summer, you know, a summer job. Um, and that money that I made was uh, accounted for. You know, it was needed to help feed me and my siblings. It was help, it used to contribute to them going back to school. Um, we talk about getting paid at this time, you know, back in the day, it was like, I think, $6. six twenty-five an hour was minimum wage. Um, So I wasn't bringing home a major check. We're talking about $300, $400 um, every was it a couple of weeks because they pay you different when you're working for a summer job, but that money was accounted for. Um, I remember buying my younger brother some uniforms, buying my sister uniforms, um, feeding us and turning that check over, you know, to to the adults. Um, But the one person name that I I had to say is Donna Jean Cole. That's my mom. Um, My mom struggled to raise three kids. You know, my brother, he stayed with his father, but my mother struggled to raise three kids on her own um, with three able-bodied men who were living that far from her and her kids. Um, She kept a job. She, she, my mother worked through her addiction. My mother, um, she was, she battled addiction. She got clean on and off for years. and I remember that one time she got clean, she wanted me to come to her anniversary because they celebrate when they got clean. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mother had, she had relapsed so much. I told her, I'm not coming no more. Until you get 10 years clean, I'm not supporting it because it doesn't sound like you're serious. Now imagine me, you know, I'm a teenager telling so yeah, like my mom this.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Until you get 10 years clean, I'm not coming. Um, and that's what I was every- going to ask
0: you. How did, how did it impact you at the time? Because even as a, as a child, You know, when we're aware of, you know, this, the story is, is, uh, I don't want to say typical, but it happens quite frequently in African-American and black communities Mm -hmm. and people of color, you know, where we struggle through, you know, economic, uh, okay, here we go. Let's, this is rolling on back, you know, (laughs) systemic depression and oppression Mm -hmm. and all these things where financially, you know, we're in a place where we can't, you know, take care of ourselves and drugs are the alternative to as an escape and get away and our parents are fighting the, you know, domestic abuse, uh, 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 alcoholic abuse, drug abuse, all these things in order to to live and survive. How did you, as a child, recognize what was going on and then get to a place where you can proceed forward and then choose a life of what you're doing now to help others?
1: When I was younger, you know, I, I say that I had a lot of animosity towards my mom um, because I felt like... You had kids, make a better decision, you know? It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I realized that my mom had me when she was 21. Mm. She had my sister when she was 25. Right. And my brother when she was 28. Right. She was in a domestic violence relationship. Mm-hmm. Both of her parents had been deceased before my mother was even 12 years old. Her older brother left the service to raise she and her six siblings once i put that into once i became aware of the beauty in a 21 year old raising a child on her own and then a 25 year old raising two children on her own then a 28 year old raising three kids on her own battling addiction working every day being in a domestic violence relationship my mother in my 20s became the most beautiful, most awesome person to me because I didn't appreciate her struggle. I, love that. I just I love that. accused yeah. her. You know, I just yeah. was upset with her. Like, why didn't you do more? But When I was able to humanize my mom, because we see our parents as these heroes, these right. superheroes, these people that are just like unbelievably, undeniably supposed to be like the epitome of everything, Right. But when I was able to grace her and see her as a human being who was overcoming obstacle, obstacles, I was finally able to appreciate the person she was and her struggle and why her addiction became so important to her. I love um, that.
0: Yep. And I, and I want to interject, and I'm sorry I don't mean to cut you off, but I think that's part of the pressure that drives them to do these things, too, mm-hmm. because they are being upheld as heroes, and they themselves are children. They're 21, we at twenty one. I think back to when I was twenty one. What 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 was I doing at twenty one? I was right. having a good time. I didn't have any kids, you know. And that's a lot of pressure at twenty one to have kids, have two, three kids. Yeah, you know. You're that's what I thought about.
1: Yourself. Yeah, that's what I thought through through my twenties. My I was in under I was in undergrad and graduate school. I got to travel. I got to have fun. Um, I didn't. My daughter did not come up become a part of my life until I was in my I was twenty nine. Um, right. but it still was the choice, the decision that I made. It wasn't just like I'm out here, you know, having fun and babies are coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, I became a, a foster dad and I'm trying to adopt her. Um, but I remember what I was doing in my twenties, and I would not have won the child, I would wanted the party and enjoy myself. So my mom didn't get the chance to do that. You know, she was raising kids and battling an addiction. Um and when my mom got her diagnosis of uh, pancreatic cancer, we started to have some conversations around real life and what that was going to look like for She called me her older guy. Um What that was going to look like for older guy. I'm going to put a precursor in and I'm going to say, whenever I talk to my mom, I might get emotional. A tear might come out. I am mm-hmm. not going to turn the camera off. It is real. It is what it is. It's right. just, it's not, it's the fact that she was just a beautiful woman and I just love her. Um, And I remember having to switch that role you know being her caregiver up until the end um it's just so beautiful to see your parent realize that they did great and that they can trust their life with you Mm. and be okay with it Mm. and 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 trust their and trust their transition you know she trusted she trusted at the end of her life with me she -hmm. trusted her transition with me and she trusted her celebration of life with me like she just this is what i need to happen she talked to me this is what i need you to do and this is what is what i look like and how it's going to be and it was a it was an amazing responsibility it was
0: i want to let's let's i want to talk about that too because that's an important thing it's first of all it's a cycle of life this in this particular instance it's you know something that happened you know pancreatic cancer uh maybe it's not it's not um age appropriate age time wise, Uh you know, you expect that to happen later on in in, in life, but Uh it's definitely a cycle of life where we we take care of our parents, if necessary. Uh I want to talk about it. Let's, let's talk about it. Like you said, in terms of who you are, but also how we as people, how everybody else can get to a point where we're okay with doing that. And where we have one forgiveness, have we, we, you know, and figure out a way to do that for our parents and loved ones, not just our parents, but our loved
1: ones. So again, you have to humanize your parent. That was the biggest thing that I had to learn. I had to set aside a lot of my animosity. I had to deal with it because it was real. You know, there were there were decisions that she made that impacted her kids, and you know, but there came a point where we just had to have conversations about those decisions. Um, my mother, uh, when she had she had 19 years clean. She had been clean for 19 years, so Beautiful. that means she stopped using. When I was 16 years old, she took me serious when I said I was done. Um, That's the beauty of who my mom is. When you think about the significant things she's done in life, her children have always been connected to that. And so it's a pride when you think about 19 years clean and that she stopped using when I was 16, when I told her that I was not coming to another celebration unless she got 10 years clean. And I remember her telling her story on her 10th year about how her son, and I was told she told this every year that her son told that her that he was not showing up to her celebration until she got the 10 years. And on her 10th year, she's telling this story and she's like, Y'all look. And I'm standing in the back. Okay, and everybody okay, turns around there like, Oh my God, he's in the back. He's in the back. He's in the back. Um,
0: Talk about crying. You'll make me cry.
1: Because the fact that think that was that point how to how her. Power,
0: Yeah, how powerful that is. That's powerful
1: it was powerful it was powerful
0: because a lot of people don't you know you don't go through a drug rehab or you stop using drugs unless you hit rock bottom unless it means something to you so the fact that it her child was the important thing in her life that told her you know if you don't stop i I can't continue on with you
1: and her last that was her her last bit with drugs um, <clears throat> her significant reasons were her three kids. She talked about, she talks about how the last straw, we all moved out. Mm. Um, and we were, we were young. We were young. I was 14. So my sister was, um, 10, 11 ish. Um, but we moved, I moved my grandmother on my dad's side. My sister, my mother talks vividly or talked vividly about, her seeing my sister pack her little clothes up in a little grocery bag, little store bag, and actually leaving out the house, and she seeing my sister leave her, and it was like, okay, no, 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 I got to get my life together because my kids aren't playing with me anymore. Um, <clears throat> as, as a so, doctor,
0: talk to us, talk to us actually about the other side of that too. Like, how is your mother feeling? How do people feel on the other side of that about why they're abusing drugs and using drugs and addicted to drugs? Where does all that come from?
1: My mom had struggles. You know, mm-hmm. she had struggles when she was growing up, and back in her time, you know, in the '60s and '70s, as people were getting older, drugs was coming a major thing in a lot of inner city neighborhoods. Um, you we know, had the war on drugs and all this stuff happening, but it was flooding our communities like it was nothing. And if you are living in Baltimore or certain areas, then we had the opioid pandemic, the crack pandemic. New at the York, time, mm-hmm. At the time was the crack pandemic because it was only impacting people of color. It Absolutely. was only impacting Black folks. So it was the crack pandemic. Yep. When it started to impact people that don't look like us, it became the opioid. Exactly. The opioid, opioid. pandemic. Opioid.
0: And that's when okay. the government starts to That's when the government got in. involved mm-hmm. and started
1: to move in because it was impacting people. People who are ODing, didn't look like us right okay yep it's not a crisis
0: until it's a crisis until
1: it was a crisis for them my mother she was in the midst of it she was struggling my mother had a lot of my mother was 21 when she met a man that she i wish she never had met um he produced my sister but it is what it is um but he was very abusive and so her way of coping with life and trauma the way that we in our communities cope because we don't believe in Therapy and telling people our business, which is still a very true thing that rings in African-American families, the people of color, even till today. We don't believe in people being in our business. We are the experts of our lives, which we are, but we can't figure it all out. We need help from other people. Um, And so she found her disconnection from her pain in substance abuse. That's what it is. It's self-medicating. She's self-medicated in order to escape her own pain, her own trauma, her own hurts. Um, my mother, once I looked at her at hospice and saw what surrounded her, I realized that my mother gave a lot of people a lot of stuff, but it wasn't materialistic things. It was love. It was acceptance. It was appreciation. She made people feel like they were human. She Hmm. made everybody who came in contact with her feel like they were, they had the capacity to be loved. Um, That they, I remember telling, I remember her telling specific chocolate, dark skin females in my family, specifically, you're beautiful, intentionally doing that so that they can believe that their skin tone and how they look was also beautiful as compared to uh, lighter skinned people. She was intentional about that.
0: And so that was a reflection of what she needed to feel for herself. Yeah, my, was? Mother was a,
1: my mother was a, uh, I think she was maybe five feet, chocolate, um, pretty, chocolate skin um, lady, and she was beautiful. You know, she was beautiful. But when you think about, um, you know, Jim Crow and how he told our people in our communities that we pin people against each other for skin color, yes. it will create division and hate, and we will kill ourselves out you know, people at that time, they didn't look at my mom and think that she was beautiful because she was chakra skin, but she was beautiful. My mother was always beautiful to me. Um, she was always jazzy. She was always fly. I would see her in her, and when it was a thing, her baby fat and her heels and her micro minis, um, she was <laughs> hit. She was it. She was in the street with her big hoop earrings on and her I gold love. bangle braces and everything. My mother used to go out to the club with her homegirls and I just sit there and be like, knowing that I was gay at the time, but I'm looking at her like, I won't be fly like her when I get older. Um, She was always the jazzy. She was the youngest of her eight siblings. She was the jazzy aunt. She had nieces and nephews who were being raised with her. Um, I got some cousins that are like in their mid forties. My mom was 56 when she actually transitioned last year. Um, But she was just, once you get to know your parent, you realize that it's more to them than meets the eye you realize that they don't let you see their struggles. Like my mother is really the definition of her crown tilted, but it didn't fall. Or if it fell, she always picked that shit right back up and she put it back on her head and she would just go. I mean, my mother was always, it became so amazing to me in the end because you know when a person is loved, when you see an outpour of love for them when they're in hospice. Mm. She had people that wanted to be on a schedule every minute to the hour who was going to be there and take care of her every Uh minute to the hour a Mm -hmm. list of people signing up to just be just be there hold her hand talk to her bathe her feed her like people are fighting to be there to take care of her right people are fighting to to be able to confess and profess that they loved her too and that that they appreciated who she was in their lives.
0: And so let me ask you this. Do you think that, excuse me, in the midst of something tragic or a fatality or uh, announcement of uh, a termination of life, do people tend to come to a resolution about, you know, who they are or they start to work on an inner, you know, their inner being to allow themselves to be more loving, more caring, more, I mean, you know, the finality of life
1: um so you know when you think of social work because i am a licensed clinician as well um you think of erickson's psychosocial theories and so there is a part it's called generativity and stagnation when we get to our get to a certain age in our lives Okay, so as a licensed clinical social worker, we do um, look at our our theory of psychosocial development. Um, And there is a point at it's called generativity and stagnation where adults come to a point when they look over their lives and they look at their accomplishments in life. They Mm -hmm. look at their failures in life and they make peace with it. Or if they don't make peace with it, then they have an internal um, conflict because they don't feel like they've accomplished much in life. Um gotcha. But we I believe that this is what I'll say. What I saw in my mother was a woman who made peace with life. My mother was a very cut throat, no black and white, straightforward person. A lot of times what I love my mom is that um while she was educated and she could probably compile a really good response to things. Um you got the Donna Cole, they called a genie bird, that was um not watered down, normally filled with profanity. Um, and she just told you like it was like straight shooting,
0: straight shooter.
1: F them people, F that job, don't worry about it. You you are the SHIT and you there going you it. Go. that's just who she was. She didn't she gave it to you raw, but it was still filled in love. My mother <clears throat> came to me and she said. I want to talk to you about something. I said, okay, so let me give you, I want to give you guys the setup. My mother found that she had pancreatic cancer. in at the end of May, I think May the 30th of 2023, 2022, by August 19th, she was, she was gone. Wow. Um, we went to the hospital. They confirmed that it was pancreatic cancer. We went back to an appointment. They told it was a stage four. Oh my God. And they told us that she had about six months to a year to live if she did chemo. She did chemo one time and she came back to me and she said, I'm not doing it. I said, Well, you do know that if you don't do it, then your prognosis goes from six months to a year to three to six months. She said, I have buried my son. I have raised two beautiful children. I have three beautiful grandchildren. I see all my beautiful nieces, nephews, great nieces and nephews running around enjoying life. And she said, I'm done. I'm done. And I just, for me, it was amazing because I just never thought my mom would get to that point. You know? Yeah. But she did. She said, I'm done. I said, okay. She said, but this is what I want. She said, I want a cookout. I had, I brought a house in 2019 and she said, I'm going to cook out at your house and I want to invite you. I said, okay. So my family alone is 60 people to hundred people on her side by ourselves. Wow. She wow. has eight siblings. They had 20 children, which are my cousins. Um, we cold world, cold, we say cold world, C O L E W O R L D cold world, because they were the Coles. <laughs> Um, We, my 20 cousins and I had 60 great grandchildren.
0: Oh my God. That's okay. huge. That's huge. huge. That's a lot of and love, a lot of things. They
1: raised us all together. Like we are raised wow. close knit as we, we ain't need friends. We had each other. She had a cookout, invited her coworkers, doctors, nurses, because she worked in the medical field, and invited all her family, invited her. Her um NA family, which is narcotic anonymous, she was a sponsor. She had about 20 sponsees. So that meant that she was responsible for the recovery of 20 other women. They all came. I mean, my house was turned into, I don't know what the hell my mom was doing. I was like, I thought you said a few people. This thing is turned into a whole entire <laughs> ordeal.
0: That was a block party.
1: Block party, but it came to a point where two significant things happened. One, she got overwhelmed because she felt like it was her actual memorial service because people were looking over her. So she needed a break, took a break. And then the second thing was she got up and she wanted to walk the house and speak to everybody and go outside, which she did. And when she walked out back, the yard was filled with people that were there. And that was the first time that I looked at my mom and I said, it's over. Like, we are coming to the end. This is the reality of life. Like, we are getting to that point.
0: How are you feeling?
1: How am I feeling?
0: How were you feeling at that moment?
1: Um, I never thought I would lose my mom this early in adulthood. My mom was 56. My mom had me when she was 21. Um, mm-hmm. So at the time, I was 34 years old planning my 35th birthday party and my graduation party from my PhD program. Mm-hmm. Um, the first day, the party was her first time with ke- chemo, and she couldn't make it. She was, she called me just distraught. Said, "Ma, it's okay, stay home." Video, I did a video dance with her on camera at the party, but it was just an emotional time. And for me, what I felt was, wow, this is adulthood. You know, we we yeah. we we talk about becoming adults, but this is a part of adulthood. This is the part of it. This is the transitioning of a beautiful woman, my mother. I've only had her all my life. You know, I've had her my whole entire life. There was about where I didn't have any siblings and I had her just by myself. Um, and I was a mama's boy. She used to keep me flying, jazzy, and she was, she was into her first child. Um, we went through a lot of life together. We argued a lot. We fussed a lot. Oh my God, when I turned 16 years old, it was just bad the of each other in the house. Um, but then we found that love again where we talk on the phone every day. I, 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 I um, identify as a gay male, and I had an ex, and he used to say, your mo- you and your mother talk every day, and every time you go to the phone with your mother, you tell her you love her. Yeah, because we love each other. We talked every single day. She was one of my best friends. She was one of my sister's best friends. She was one of my brother's best friends. Um, But I knew it was real when she came to me and she said, I'm done. Yeah. And... My grief today plays the trick of you always get to that bargaining stage in your grief. And it's like, wow, what if I would have pushed the harder? You know, what if I would have made her go through the chemo? I would have got a couple more months with her, but it would have been her in agony. Yeah. My mother went out beautifully. She was in a room with me and I think it was eight of my cousins and my sister. We, my mother was known for this rambunctious laugh. She would laugh so loud. You ever see the video when they say you bring your partner home and your family laugh at him? Right. Yeah. My family always think, my family is it- always is triggered by that person laughing in the background because it sounds exactly like my mother. That's I love. She that. had this loud, uncontrollable, rambunctious laugh. We, my mother, got to hospice, and we were in hospice. And this day, the doctors had told us that we were coming down to a couple of hours. Mm-hmm somebody said something in the room, and me and my, I think, five cousins and my sisters shared the most uncontrollable, hearty, love-felt, hilarious laugh, and we were laughing so loud, and in that moment, my mother transitioned. It was like clockwork. Wow. Wow. We kept checking on her on her bed. We kept checking on her, making sure she was okay. We kept checking on her, waiting for her, waiting for her, waiting for it. But it wasn't until, in true Donna Jean Cole fashion, when all the attention was off of her, and she could just be in the midst of her family laughing, and all she wanted was for us to be okay, and we were sharing this hearty, hearty, hearty laugh that Donna Jean Cole at about 6 23 p.m on friday august the 19th 2023 slipped away and right in the midst of her family laughing until this day not one person in that room can figure out what the hell we were laughing at because it wasn't important mm. yeah. it wasn't important she just as she allowed for a moment that we would not be it made that moment so less traumatizing because we weren't staring at her. We were all just laughing and talking. And we were just, we till this day don't know what the hell we were laughing at. But it was in true my mother's form that we would be laughing, distracted, not worried about her. She worried about everybody else, not worried about her, that she would be like, okay, it's my time to go. And she left um it
0: was right in alignment of where it right, supposed to be yeah
1: right where it needed to be right where yeah. it need to be i remember going to her hospice on that friday and i said because i looked at the sky and i said today is today you know today is the day you know yeah. she had gotten to that point where you start <clears throat> as your body you start to think about your old people that have gone and you start talking to them right. um that truly happened she was talking to her mom and her dad and that was beautiful she danced with my aunt eva um to forever such a long time and that's how long I'll love you she got out of the bed found the strip to get out the bed to dance this one last dance with her big sister her oldest sister alive um and she looked at me this is the day before and she said come here I came to the side of her bed and she said I love you with my whole heart and I said, I love you too. Now you have to remember that this is the end stage of pancreatic cancer. So her muscles and joints and moving and talking it is very, very limited at this point. So she's mustering all her strength to say the last thing she needs to say to people because this is important. And I said, I love you too, man. She said, no. She said, you are the best, best, best big brother ever. And I could not have done life without you. She said, I need you to understand that nobody tops you and what you have done for me and my kids. And she said, and I love you and I appreciate you. She said, and I love you from the bottom of my heart and I thank you. And I said, you're welcome. And she said, no, look at me. She said, I mean this. And she, me and my mother started this thing when she was, when she first found out she had cancer, she was very nervous.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So she, she she cut her hair off and she was self-conscious about it. So what I would do is I would go over to her house. And when I walked in, I would kiss on her forehead and I kissed on her cheek, kiss on her cheek. And she would kiss me on my cheek and kissing my cheek. And this continued on until my mother lost all of her mobility and she couldn't move. And so when I would come to her house, when I walk in her house, she would just do like this. And she would put her forehead down so I can kiss it and I would kiss it. And so after she gave me this message a day prior to passing, she looked at me and she grabbed my hands and she put her head down. And yeah. I kissed on her forehead and she, and I leaned in and she came up, put her arms around my neck because we started doing this too. So I could lift her mm-hmm. and put her arms around my neck and she kissed in my cheek three times. One, two, three. And she lay back in her chair. And so her mother was having moments of going in and out of reality. Mm-hmm. So she got all of her strength to say all this to me. And then when she laid back in her chair, she did like this. And it just went away. She went back into that just state of just not being connected to reality and space. And then she started playing in the air by herself. But she took the opportunity to give me my flowers, to give my red rose before she actually left this earth. And so the one thing that I had to do for her funeral was I had to give out 400 red roses to every person that attended her funeral. And we did just that. And I am trying to think of a way this year to... Get 400 roses and give them out to people every year on August the 19th. I think I want to do that in remembrance of my mother because the one thing that she could give, she was from West Baltimore, struggling, a poor, impoverished, African-American mother, raising three kids by herself. She struggled to pay her bills. She faced evictions. She was a drug addict, a crack whore. You could call her everything in a book. But the one thing my mother gave everybody that ever came in contact with her was love, and acceptance no matter what you went no matter where you were no matter what you heard about donna jane cole the next word she followed from her name was she loved me my mother gave love to a lot of my friends that got put out of their parents homes when they came out she was the mom that was Mm-mm, baby come stay with us live here my her mother gave a lot of love to people that were struggling with addiction she made them feel wanted and needed she made them feel important she made them feel loved and appreciated. Her um, mother gave a lot of love to people that she could find in back alleys who people would look at and they would just disregard them. They would say they don't deserve love. She was the epitome of being selfless when it came to loving people. She just spread love around. I don't know how she did that because her love that she received was limited to the capacities of family.
0: Right. Well, I have to say, you, you said a mouthful. But first of all, thank you for sharing the story. Um, as you see it, it affect me in, in, in a very uh, hard way. Um, one thing I have to say is how beautiful it is to have a celebration of your life while you're still alive. Mm-hmm. And to see all the people who you've, whose lives you've touched in a way. And they show up. And they show out. Um, how hard it is for her to be present in that moment. And, you know, like you said, she got a little overwhelmed. She needed to take a break. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to know that your life is coming to an end. And these are all the people of your your life, your friends, your family, who you've supported and you've touched in some way. Uh, Wouldn't it be wonderful if we did that? Like if we all did that, you know, and and not to talk about me, but I want to sidestep on my birthday. That's what I do. I don't have a party. I celebrate my friends for being in my life and for touching my life and giving That's so amazing. much to me and making me who I am. Everybody, you know, if you go to my Facebook page, I probably have 15, 2000 messages on there, but I go through and I thank everybody for being a part of my life and being a part of my journey. So what if we lived our life like that, you know, being thankful for the people who have touched us in some way yeah, it would be so much better so much better and appreciate appreciate life also i want to know what you've experienced is so traumatic how do we as people go through trauma and are able to proceed on with our lives you lost your brother through covid you lost your mother soon after how do we take that and we continue to move on with our lives because a lot of people we get stuck in that you lose people that are important to you in your life and you just you're stuck there It becomes an obstacle for the rest of your life. How can we move beyond that?
1: And so this segues into my series right now that we're on in my podcast, Facing the Giants. Let's talk about it. I believe that we start by facing those giants. Um, We have to call our shit to the floor. Um, And we have to call it to the floor in a way that we would do it for other people with grace. We are not gracious to ourselves. We 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 are not gracious. We give everybody else grace, but me, you know, but Tavon, but yes. Doctor Baysmore. Um, <clears throat> and a part of giving myself grace is facing a giant in my life to say that I have pain, I have hurt. As a black man, I can say that I am hurting and I need to heal, and I need help doing that. But I have to face the giants in my life by calling my hurt and my pain to the arena, to the floor of my life, where I'm ready to say, and now what am I gonna do about it? Forgiveness, you said, you mentioned that word. Forgiveness is never about the other person. It is about me. It's about relinquishing myself yes. from the bondages that that person, that experience has over my life. Yes, It's me yes. snatching the chains of that hurt from around my heart so that my heart can beat again, beat again in a way that leads to recovery and healing.
0: Yes, yes, yes.
1: We have to face the giants in face our life. Face the giant.
0: <laughs> Recognize that we have it, face it, and then relinquish it. And, and then relinquish it. That's where the grace comes in.
1: And that's where grace comes in. And yeah. guess what? You
0: yeah. don't have to have it
1: all figured out. And so, you know, I was raised in a church. I'm not having Just
0: Say that again. you You don't don't have 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 to have it all all figured
1: out don't i was raised in a church i'm not heavy religious but when i think about facing a giant we think about david and goliath right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. david went to battle with a slingshot he was not equipped for the battle he was not prepared for the battle the odds were actually stacked against him but when you trust and have faith in whatever your higher power or belief is when you have faith in yourself When you have faith in your identity, when you have faith in your capabilities, when you have faith in your capacity and you just show up, show up to the ring and trust that there is success prevailing on the other side of that ring, even if you have a slingshot, You, you pull that boy out, you get ready and you pull that thing back and you shoot and you aim. For the one thing, the head, the place that you know that you need to make this count, you gotta make it count, and you gotta shoot your slingshot with confidence, though. Like you can't be all flimsy acting right. out. Like you have to believe that you're about to take this giant out. And when you have that courage, that bravery, when you have that, um belief and motivation in yourself, no matter what the giant is in your life, if it's overcoming addiction, if it's healing, if it's recovery, if it's getting out of a toxic relationship, toxic friendships, if it's a health and fitness goal, if it's a mental health goal, if it is starting a business, if it's going back to school, if it, whatever it is, if it's healing a relationship with your family and going into therapy, once you believe in the outcome, when you believe in the outcome, then you are truly ready to step in the arena and face the giants of life and guess what once you face one it doesn't mean that another one is not coming that's you know right. david had goliath but the, the battlefield was filled with giants right he's his focus was just goliath
0: right that so you need people with you life and challenge we're always exactly. going to have obstacles and i think you said it it's you know show up you have to believe that you can overcome it you have to have it. that's your You pain. have to. Show up, recognize that there's a problem. Show up and believe that you can conquer it,
1: mm-hmm. right? And do the work and do, and the, do work. the actual work. You know, don't come and say, I'm going to start a Fortune 500 company, but then you don't put nothing in place to do it. You just sitting at home researching how to start a fortune 500 company. What's this? Is that me? You know, you have to really put your work into action, you have to put your plan into action we sit and we plan a lot but we have to start moving those pieces to start putting things in place
0: and if you don't know how ask questions
1: ask questions ask questions get connected to a coach um get connected to a mentor i a don't mentor. believe in coaches yep. i believe that coaches are um coaches believe they're as strong as their um, most valuable player but mentors want their most valuable player to be better than them so that they can go out and change the world Um, So get connected to a mentor, get connected to a peer that can be an accountability partner that can hold you accountable to the things that you say you want to do in life. Um, Make some plans, make some moves, start small, start small, but do something every day. Do something every day to reach whatever it is your goal is going to be. And when... Op schools come up because it's going to happen. There's going to be things that's going to come and make you believe that you can't do this, that you're not great enough. You're not strong enough, that this was not meant or built for you, that you were not meant or built for this. Still, like you said, show up so regardless, up. show up.
0: Yeah, show up. Uh, I want to talk quickly again about your podcast, and then I want to ask you about your professional. So the podcast, what's the, you said, tell us again, what what's the purpose of it? You have some interesting you know, episodes like, it's okay to say, I'm not okay, limitless uh um setting limits know your worth beautiful thank you this has become my 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 favorite podcast now
1: thank you you know because it's so
0: valuable and these are episodes that we can play over and over and And over over again over again and when you're feeling when you when you feel like you have the obstacles and you need somebody to hear you can't have you don't have a mentor play these episodes i'm telling you right now play the episodes of this podcast
1: So yes, I'm going to talk. My shift is a podcast that started out of a conversation that I was having. So I was doing a tour across Baltimore. It was called Speak to My Heart. And what Speak to My Heart was we were speaking to the heart matters of things, the broken places, those hurtful places. I'm a clinician at heart. I have the therapeutic skills to help people heal and recover. Um, But I like to do that in group sessions, and I like to do it on a real front, face-to-face, like getting, digging in. Not that therapy crap that, you know, no. But we're going to get serious about this. Um, and we're going to call our stuff to the floor. I love Brene Brown. You know, she is one of my inspirations, the social worker who has Red Table, who has the TED Talks, and she has, you know, YouTube stuff going on. Um, and I like the real in your face things that mean something. Like, I don't need all these metaphors and I don't even understand what the hell we're talking about. I need some real, like, okay, how do I get over a breakup? How do I deal with losing a sibling? How do I deal with being an adult who is losing a parent? How do I talk about um, being a Black man, a Black man yes. raised in communities normally by our mothers, and then our mothers pass away. Mm-hmm. What that mm-hmm. feels like for a Black man who was raised by a single mother who don't have connections and ties to their father's family. Thank God I do. But we have to think about how that impacts our brothers. Right. Um. So, yes, I'm going to talk. My shift is that. Yes, I'm going to talk. My shift is a open conversation where I feel like I'm the expert on certain topics. And we talk about how we can, how we can, in real life, make shifts in our life from negative places to more positive, resilient places that we can overcome and we can heal and we can grow. That's all that it's about. But we're we raw. We're raw. And we go get down to some of the real things that people don't like to talk about in here. Um, But it's a safe space if you really come to do the work. That's what the podcast is about, really having open conversations about healing. And anyone that lost a sibling should listen to Brotherly Love. Um, There were two parts to it, me and my three three friends, Mm -hmm. all lost brothers who were younger than us. Well, one of our brothers, one brother was older than her, but we all lost brothers who were younger than us in significant, detrimental ways. Um some through sickness and some through some very tragic experiences. And we talk about how being that close to those siblings and how we had to overcome that. So anybody that needs to talk about losing a sibling, listen to Brotherly Love. Um, but that's what it is. I was, you know, traveling and I said, okay, I got to get this on a better platform, you know, So if people can really hear me talking, like I talk to my staff. I talk to my staff like this. This is how my staff get motivational. When we have all staff meetings, we talk just like this. I get down to the nitty gritty of life and overcoming obstacles. And that's what, yes, I'm going to talk my shift is about.
0: Beautiful and beautifully done. I'm going to tell you this though. I don't know if it's not on YouTube, but we need to see you. We need to see you on YouTube. We need to see you on a video platform doing this this podcast. What I want to do too, and and we, we can talk about this off, camera but i want to have a panel of people like yourself clinical social workers uh my psychotherapist that comes on the show and we'll have a panel we'll talk about it i don't know you specifically deal with black men uh but i'm sure you have a diverse clientele as well but i would like to do that for black men yeah and and just people in general but you know i feel like we we're at a place where we need help and we need people who look like us helping us
1: yeah. And we need, we need to, people learn by different, in different ways. Mm-hmm. And right now the thing that is, um, overtaking our world is social media, videos and, uh, podcasts and things that people can see, you know, they want to see things on networks and YouTube and Netflix Absolutely. and all this stuff. So being able to see it is also helpful because people like to learn in different ways. So Absolutely. we need more visual projects. More visual. People were like, oh, okay. So the person behind that podcast looks like me.
0: Right. So let's do it. I think we, we should do it. Um, I agree. And we can talk about that later. I don't want to hold you up anymore. I could talk to you all day. First of all, I want to invite you back to the show. Second of all, I want to thank, thank you. you for your time. Um, I know you're a busy man, busy schedule. Um, anything else you want us to know right now? Because I'm going to invite you back to the show to talk. So we can talk about more later. But anything upcoming that you need us to know? Or first of all, how do we get in touch with you so we can you know, reach out and
1: um, please, please, please follow me for content on Twitter. I am the Dr. Baysmore on Instagram. I am Dr. Baysmore, the social worker. Um, please follow me. I will follow you guys back. Um, but you can find me on Spotify, iTunes, um, Apple podcasts, really. Um, at yes, I'm going to talk my shift. That is S-H-I-F-T, not S-H-I-T, but y'all know we're going to talk our shit on there. Too. <laughs> um, and you can follow the podcast and look for new upcoming things. Our next podcast series in um, May is going to be Discovering Self. In my first podcast, I'm going to probably record while I'm in Thailand next week. Um, So this is going to be a great um, experience of recording in Thailand and discovering myself because I have decided that in this life, after of my mom and my brother, that I'm going to take every advantage of this life to explore and be the person I want to be. And I have been doing that. I I resigned from my job. Um, I'm in the process of trying to figure that out, but I have been living and and enjoying life. My mom, I told her, I promised her I was going to live and I'm living. So next week we'll be in Thailand.
0: That's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. And um, definitely I'm going to be listening on that journey. And Hopefully, like I said, you show some visuals too, because we need to see that as well. So please, everybody, make sure you check out this podcast. It's called Yes, I'm Going to Talk My Shift. I've already rated it. I've already reviewed it. I'm listening to it. It's on my follow list and make sure it's on yours as well. Follow him on all the social media. Get to know him and help shift your life. His name is Dr. Tavon Bazemore. He's a licensed clinical social worker and consultant and host of the podcast yes i'm going to shift my life i want to thank him for coming on the show and hopefully i can be a guest on his show look of out course. for the panel that we might have well i'm going to say we're having it because i'm talking this into existence, existence. we're going to have a panel to help you know shift your life look out for that Thank you guys for all for joining me for One Mike Night podcast. Follow the show at One Mike Night. One Mike Night is spelled O N E M I C N I T E. Make sure you follow me at Marcos Luis, M A R C O S L U I S, on all social media. And a lot of you have been asking about the t shirts, and yes, they're coming. I have one on right now. It says, I am art, and the One Mike Night logo there. So please check out the merchandise and check out my store, Azules E N on shopify check out the elements of lifestyle thank you for joining me we'll see you next time on one mic night we're out